1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
2: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg
1: experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com podcast. we you want to talk uh, Wall Street, why not? That's one of my favorite topics. We can round table this thing here. There's a lot going on the street, as always, And we want to bring together some of the smartest minds we have on all things Wall Street. We do that with Shanali Bassick of Bloomberg News. And Allison Williams, she's a senior banks analyst at uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Shanali joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And uh, Allison joins us on the phone. Shanali, a lot of news coming out of the street over the last few days. I want to focus just on headcount. What are the banks doing these days? I mean, deal flow in 2022, very tough to come by trading better. But deal flow tough to come by, same kind of year to date. I'm kind of surprised I haven't seen bigger layoffs. What are you hearing from your contacts on the street?
3: Listen, a lot of these bankers say that there's pent up demand. Big corporations want to do strategic things, but they're strapped on money, number one, and they're also strapped on the ability to make these really big de- strategic decisions in the middle of so much uncertainty, particularly with the pace of interest rate increases in the United States. So, with that uncertainty, they don't want to lay people off because things could come back. But, They have not. They don't look like they're going to come back in full force anytime soon. So they're finding other things to do because they expect that things like activism will force spinoffs. Remember places like Elliot, Paul Singer has raised record amounts of money. So there's a chance that they can do other things. You know,
4: I, I I don't even know where to begin on the Wall Street beat just because I feel like this week has been literally drinking out of a fire hose uh, or attempting to, at least, uh, with the Wall Street story. But uh, one of the most read on the Bloomberg Terminal stories today is J.P. Morgan uh, and blaming Jess Daly for their ties with Epstein, demanding eight years of pay. <sighs> uh, walk us through this story. Of course, it's of interest a lot, not just to our Wall Street audience, but to everyone that's been following the story.
3: Yeah, and this has been going on for a while, but really it's hit a new climate if you will, where you have JP Morgan suing Jess Staley, who was a former Jamie Dimon protege, a star banker, former CEO of Barclays. JP Morgan itself was sued a couple of times over the Epstein debacle because Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein was a client of the bank. And now what you have Jamie Dimon and JP Morgan really doing now is really separating themselves from, from Jeff Staley's own actions within the bank. And I would say that Jeff Staley himself has really denied a lot of the allegations against him. The suits brought forward... Against J.P. Morgan were from the U.S. Virgin Islands, which has been leading a lot of Mm -hmm. this um, litigation when it comes to just Staley and Jeffrey Epstein, as well as a woman identified by Jane Doe, who says she was a victim Mm. of Jeffrey Epstein. So very closely watched Saga, and to Critty's point, a lot of money at stake.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Allison, uh, Allison Williams, Bloomberg Intelligence. What are your thoughts, Allison, as you talk to... All these big uh, banks that you've covered for, for decades, what do they think about 2023? Is there going to be any meaningful rebound in activity there? I know the trading business has been pretty solid, but the uh, advisory business and some of the capital raising business has not.
5: Yeah, that's been, I think, the disappointment to start the year. And uh, to Shanali's point, I, I think that you know, most of the banks were sort of uh, banker hoarding, I guess, as we say, not willing to let go of all the bankers after they, you know, had to um, quickly do all these hires in 2021. And so they're a little bit reticent to start doing uh, cutbacks. There was a lot of hope. And I think the disappointing thing is that even though the markets were sort of have had a strong rally or had a strong rally going, you know, starting at the end of last year and into January, the IPO issuance has still been really dismal. M&A is really dismal. And so I think that's why you're starting to see some things bubble up. This is normally the strongest seasonal quarter. Um, And I think, you know, what we really need is clarity on the macro environment. So even though the stocks have rallied, some of the expectations for those who want to come to market are still a little bit too high. Um, and they've been and, and they've been hesitant to sort of execute, so the pipelines are still there, but equity m a disappointing. the one bright spot, if you will has been in the debt capital markets business. we heard from Citigroup yesterday they're expect you know the industry wallet's down about forty percent uh, in the first quarter, so that's that's better than the down fifty percent that that we've been seeing, but only modestly and that has to do with comparisons. But the one bright spot is the debt issuance. Mm -hmm. We have seen um, some companies coming to market, especially on the investment grade
3: I want to piggyback off of what Allison is saying, Mm -hmm. because there's one deal that's being talked about today that is kind of hot, and that is the Uber leverage loan. Remember, Morgan Stanley is really leading that. Uber is a longtime client of Morgan Stanley. It's trading at $34 a share. Remember, it went public. Closer to 40, so really this has been a tough trade. <laughs> but Morgan Stanley, you know, was their lead underwriter and now is helping bring a leverage loan offering back to the table. They had a leverage loan offering last month that had seemingly high demand. You can see it, Paul. Investors are still searching for yield. <laughs> I am dying to know how this plays out. But remember, Morgan Stanley is also hung with a lot of that Twitter debt. So it's meaningful to watch them come out in the market again with a company like Uber.
4: Can we just take a moment to appreciate Uber and the Uber news today? Because (laughs) this story, ride-hailing company looking to raise $760 million from that sale, and that's separate from them considering to spin off their freight logistics division. Um, So interesting stuff going on over at Uber, but let's bring it back uh, to the banks if we can. Allison, uh, tell us a little bit about the trade here, because it feels fairly intuitive that if you were looking at at higher rates uh, on, for the economy, 6%, I believe, is now uh, the base case for a lot of economists out there. Not the consensus yet, but we're getting there. Does the automatic translation for the bank sector simply mean more interest profit?
5: So the, the that's what it's meant so far. So rising rates has been really a boon to the net interest income. But I think the damper that we're going to see in 2023 is that the cost side of the equation now is starting to go up. So in the early days, rising from zero interest rates, that we got the lift on the yield side of the equation, and that's really been strong. And banks really haven't had to sort of lift their deposits rates because we were coming off of such a low base. But now we are seeing that. We started to see that sort of late last year, and we think we're going to continue to see that this year, I, th- I think that's sort of well understood at this point um, in terms of the expectations for net interest income. But it's really, um, you know, the credit losses side of the equation, the loan growth side of the equation that um, investors are focusing on. And then, you know, looking at interest rates, I think that you know what we've heard from management is is we really do need the Fed to stop hiking. To get sort of more uh, economic, to get a little bit more certainty on where the yep. economy is going.
1: You know, Allison, if I were starting my career over again on Wall Street as a young person, I'd go right to private equity. That's just where I think some amazing returns can still be had. What's your outlook, you know, give us uh, kind of for the private equity business in the, over the next 12 to 18 months?
5: Yeah, so private equity, uh, you know, they have, I mean, the amount of money they have raised has been incredible. Even those managements have become, a, a, you know, a little bit more hesitant, but it's really, I mean, within private markets, it's really the private credit side where we've seen um, some of the biggest boom in terms of fundraising, and we expect that to continue this year. Um, to your point, um, a little bit more activity going on on that side of things versus the, versus the trading desks where we're expecting to see lower revenue again compared to last year.
1: All right, good stuff. A uh, little Wall Street roundtable there. We do that with Shanali Basak of Bloomberg News. And uh, Alison Williams of Bloomberg Intelligence, she covers the banks. She's been doing that for decades uh, here at Bloomberg. Uh, and then before that, at Morgan Stanley Investment Management, where they were big shareholders, a lot of the big financial institutions. So uh, we'd love to get her perspective here.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, 1,000 global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at Forum.com. Well, we
1: were just talking to Alison Williams from Bloomberg Intelligence, and she was talking about Deal flow really being uh, slow, and yeah. I guess that happens when interest rates rise. It gets a little bit more expensive to get deals done. Let's talk to somebody who's actually right in it, uh, hip deep. Randy Schwimmer, he's co-head of senior lending and senior managing director, Churchill Asset Management. And Randy, we'd like to talk to you about kind of what's going on in the, in the deal flow world. You know, mid-market deals, not necessarily the ones the big blockbusters, but a lot of the mid-market deals that re- that really rely on senior lending leverage lending all that kind of stuff that you guys do there's a bunch of private credit folks out there that are putting money into the space it's kind of tough to get deals done i guess when interest rates aren't zero so talk to us about what you're seeing in the
6: marketplace so yeah january was actually a busy month we actually led 10 deals that was the, the most of any direct lender in january now it was one month february busy as well, haven't gotten the final numbers yet, what we're seeing is that general flow to your point in m and is, is off from last year at this time, part because of what's going on with interest rates and part because of the lack of a straight line that the Fed, I you mean, know, we all got thinking, hey, 75, 50, 25, they're going to do 25 again and then maybe hold off. All of a sudden, the Fed chair is floating 50 basis points. That's a little bit of a surprise. Maybe he's just trying to be, you know, jawbone the market down. But generally speaking, in private credit and private equity, the capital is long-term. And these private equity sponsors that we work with in general in direct lending have raised capital over a long period of time with strategies that are not short-term. So they have in their pipeline deals that they've been working on for months and months and months. And they're coming to us increasing numbers now as they get the sense that the economy is strong. Because one of the things that people are missing is how strong businesses are that are in defensive sectors, so healthcare, yeah. technology, software. Our portfolio, which is mostly defensive, has been, is up revenue-wise, the entire portfolio, 30 percent over last year. Cash flows a little less, 29 percent. What's driving that is these businesses that are more B2B are in a very different slipstream than consumer-focused, high capex, um, in some areas with high commodity costs or high wage costs. Those businesses are really driving the economy right now. They're driving job growth, as we've seen with wage pressures. And I think, in general, that part of this, the business, defensive sectors, that private equity sponsors are focused on is going to be very active this year. Now, MA flow will be sh- short of what it was last year because last year, a year ago, we had zero interest rates, amazingly, mm-hmm. right? We yeah. hadn't started raising yet. But I think the other thing that's going on is the sellers of these companies are looking just like if you're going to sell your apartment and you're looking for the right price, they're saying, you know what, get all the papers ready, get my mortgage papers ready, get it all ready to go. And then if I see an opening, I'm going to go for it. So I think the second half of the year is poised for a huge rebound.
4: Well, how does that kind of square with, say, M&A activity, for example? It feels like a lot of the private deals lately have been driven by acquisitions.
6: Yes, and I think that is a tried and true technique that private equity sponsors have to build these businesses up. the The M&A flow, as I mentioned, is slower. But I think what's going on is there's a, a sense of what can we need? What do we need to do if we have to finance these businesses, Paul? To your question about interest rates, so let's say they raise another 50 basis points. That gets you to five and a quarter from 4.75. You know, the average. Fed funds rate over the last sixty years was five and a half. So we're even. We're not even at the at the average yet. June of two thousand and seven, it reached five and a half percent. So we're not quite at that point. I don't think. And by the way, the economy is in much better shape today than it was back then, and the banks are in much better shape. So that's the other thing that's going on. The private sector, direct lenders, are taking huge share from the banks right now. We just did the numbers. Sixty one by by a ratio of sixty one to four. Direct lenders are doing more deals than the banks are doing year to date. That's a 15 to 1 margin. Okay, so what it means is for the deals that are getting done, even though the volume is half, folks like Churchill are doing them. So actually, our investors. And by the way, I've done the, the tour in the last month since I saw you last of the sort of capitals of the world. So I was in Tokyo, I was in Munich, and last week, this past week I was in Baltimore. Okay, mm-hmm. and. Our clients are saying two things. One, how's the portfolio holding up with the higher interest rates? And yeah. two, what's gonna happen with deal flow? Are you gonna give me, in, you know, continue to invest my money? On the deal flow side, we're saying, yeah, we're actually seeing, based on January and early returns on February, we're seeing plenty of flow. On the portfolio side, what's interesting is because these defensive sectors are businesses that are actually doing well, we're actually seeing more upgrades in our portfolio than downgrades. And the, and the performance of these businesses continues to be strong. Now. We did a pro forma study of the portfolio if if the Fed goes up to 6%. And we found that if you perform at that, interest coverage still remains solid around two times. I asked my portfolio manager, okay, and this was a question an investor had, all right, how many of your companies will be below one times interest coverage? And the answer was, on a pro forma basis, only 1%. That's pretty strong, okay? That means that a very small number of those companies will not make their interest. Now, of course, they're going to be growing in the meantime, so... We're not worried. But this is, I think, there's, there's a glass half full approach here that we're taking, that we're seeing, which we're getting the message out to our mm-hmm. investors, that we th- actually think this is a good time to be in private credit.
1: All right. So if I, you know, back when interest rates were zero, I'd come to Churchill Asset Management. I'd give you my money because you guys would get me yield. Now I can park my money into your treasury and get 5%. What does that do to your capital raising?
6: Yeah, you can pitch? do that. You know, we don't view... Private credit is a timing issue because we've been getting seven percent year in year out as a as an unlevered return for investors for seventeen years. It's up now, no question mm-hmm. about it. And what we're telling investors, and they're asking this, like you know, well, if we come in now, you know, we're, are we missing out on on the to your point, corporate um, investment grade bonds? The challenge with bonds right now is that what happens if interest rates continue to go up? What if the Fed pushes rates up higher and you yeah. buy bonds now? The other thing that I'm hearing is that the risk premium is not there in a lot of the corporate bond market because it's, if you get 5% on treasuries, you're only getting 6% on corporates. Is that enough? So if you play this private credit game with senior loans, it's 12%. First You know, that's, first of all, that's floating rates, so if rates keep going up, you're going to do better. Second of all, it's not correlated to the rest of the market. If we have super volatility in the second, third quarter – I like to think of private credit as kind of the noise cancellation headphones for, for the capital markets. Whatever go, is going on in the markets, you're not going to feel that because these are, this again, long-term capital, uh, no no ratings, the marks are private. Yeah. And so that stability is the kind of thing that these investors, from based on my tour of those capitals, are really asking for.
1: All right. Good stuff. Randy, really appreciate uh, chatting with you. Get
6: a good sense of what's going
1: on out there in the private credit business. And we talk about private equity, but… As Matt and I have been saying as we've been talking to Randy for you know a while here, the private credit space is just so active. And it just amazed me how, how quickly that business has grown. Uh, and Randy had some good stats there. Randy Schwimmer, he is co-head of senior lending and he's the senior managing director at Churchill Asset Management. Private credit uh, lending to – private equity firms a lot of times who are getting deals done in the mid-market space. A lot of opportunity there that I think for a lot of people maybe flies under the radar a little bit, but they've been getting great returns for a long time, and it's just an interesting part of uh, the market. So uh, we like to check in with Randy every once in a while, and he comes into our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Well, there's a long way to go until the next presidential election, but many political organizations are already ramping up efforts, in particular – Some are focusing on the Latino vote and working out the best approach to electoral issues that matter most to this growing population. Let's get more on that effort now in a special report from Bloomberg's Lisa Mateo. The
7: political divide among Latino voters is seeing a subtle shift to the grand old party. Exit polls from 2022 show Democrats won about 60 percent of Latinos overall, down from 65 percent in 2020. And with Latinos making up more than 30 million of the country's registered voters, the push to capture their support continues to grow.
5: There is now a microscope on our community. That has not existed before.
7: Ivan Gutierrez is managing director for Latino Victory, an organization dedicated to building political power in the Latino community. Because in 2020, we did see some
5: small counties and regions, you know, that did um, have a higher Republican turnout vote, but that was not emblematic really across the board. Democratic Congressman
7: Henry Cuellar, who recently won Texas's 28th District, says Republicans have been making a genuine play for the Latino vote.
8: I have not seen this push since the younger
2: George Bush. And then Trump did this. And then, of course, the National Republicans certainly uh, did that this last election.
7: While there wasn't a red wave in the 2022 midterms, Republican Governor Ron DeSantis turned heads when he won Florida's heavily Latino counties of Miami-Dade and Osceola. Ronnie Lucero, national chairman for the Republican National Hispanic Assembly, says DeSantis's stance on COVID lockdowns helped.
8: They temporarily locked down and then opened up immediately and kind of let everybody kind of live their life and make their own decisions. And to the Hispanic community, Being able to make your own decisions and freedom is one of the most important values that you can have as an American.
7: Maria Teresa Kumar, co-founder and president of Voto Latino, says the swift reopening appealed to many Latino business owners.
8: That was for many Latino business owners a lifeline because they don't have any plan B to fall upon. She adds that
7: the age of Hispanic voters in the Sunshine State also played a part.
8: Florida is the only state where young Latino voters will never eclipse older Latino voters, and they have a tendency of being far more progressive policies.
7: In California, Governor Gavin Newsom was reelected with the support of 62% of Latino voters but still two points lower than his first election in 2018, according to the Los Angeles Times. In Pennsylvania, Kumar says Latino support was strong for Democrat John Fetterman.
8: In Fetterman's race, and this is according to exit polling that came out of March for Our Lives, 79% of Latino youth voted for a Democrat in this past election.
7: And findings from research firm Equis show solid support for Democrats from Latino voters in places like Nevada and Arizona in 2022. Yet still, Representative Cuellar feels the party needs to step up their game.
2: Some of us for many years have said, you know, to the Nationals, the DCCC, you know, DNC and the state parties, we've said, hey, guys, We cannot take Hispanics for granted. You know, usually the effort was, uh, let's start after Labor Day, you know, 60 days or so before the election, and then let's start pushing that.
7: Latino victories, Gutierrez says politicians need to remember that Latinos are not a monolith.
5: Latinos in Texas and California and Florida are all very different and have very different lived experiences and backgrounds. And therefore, their votes are going to be different at times.
7: Lucero points to the topic of abortion and how the support for pro-life policies can vary culturally from state to state.
8: You have a large Mexican population in Texas and a illegal voting population of Mexicans in Texas and in Mexico. Abortion was really, for the most part, illegal all the way up until the end of 2020, 2021. So that's a losing battle if you're, if you're pushing a pro-life policy for a Mexican population. But that didn't work so well when you look at New Mexico, because New Mexico is more of a Spanish, Hispanic type of voting bloc.
7: When it comes to immigration, Latinos are torn between providing a path to citizenship and illegal immigration. A New York Times-Siena College poll shows about 55 percent of Latinos support Democrats on legal immigration and roughly a third support a border wall. The same poll shows that while Democrats maintain a majority of Latino voters, younger male Hispanics, especially in the South, appear to be drifting away from the party due to economic concerns. So could a shift in the Latino vote be significant enough to change the political landscape of swing states with large Latino populations?
8: Absolutely, because you're looking at purple states right now, you know, bluish purple states for the most part, and you flip Arizona, you flip Nevada, and you start flipping a couple of little districts here and there inside of California, you start making a difference.
7: Small steps that could move bigger changes. In New York, Lisa Mateo, Bloomberg Radio.
1: Good stuff. Lisa Mateo from, uh, she's right here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, so we can ask some questions of Lisa. Lisa Mateo, business correspondent for Bloomberg Radio, but those in the New York market know Lisa from her years at. PIX11, 11, Channel 11, anchor, reporter for 18 years. Also did some radio gigs at CBS and iHeartMedia, so she knows what she's doing out here. Uh, Lisa, thanks so much for this report. It's fascinating. Um, oh, I have to point out, too, from your resume, the most important part, a proud graduate of Rutgers University. Yes, The State University of New Jersey. <laughs> Lisa, you did this report on Latino votes. It's important today. It's going to be really important in 2024. Mm-hmm. What I found fascinating is... It's not a monolith, as you say. Correct. Explain to us kind of the differences across the country among the Hispanic vote.
7: Yeah, it's also what countries you're from, but it also has to do with age. It has to do with gender as well. If you think about it, age, I mean, that's something that that politicians are really going to be focused on come the next election in 2024. Because you think about it, the 10-year difference. Latinos are 10 years younger than the country overall, if you think about age-wise. Four and a half million Latinos are going to be coming into voting age by the next election. Mm. So you see where their focus is. Um, And it's just such an important thing because a lot of the younger Latinos have more progressive uh, issues and, and and thoughts. But the problem is that it also switches by gender. So when you think about young male Latinos, some of those are switching more toward Republican because they're thinking more economy, um, especially in the South. But females are more progressive. So I think age is definitely going to be something that they're going to be focused on. They're going to be investing more, investing earlier, starting mm-hmm. earlier. They're already knocking on doors, getting more Latinos registered to vote now. So
4: yeah. What about the 2024 election here?
7: Obviously, this is going to be a major factor. Did we get any insight about the next presidential election? They are. something that was interesting too. We we're talking about the next presidential because you have Title Forty Two. You know that's going to be coming to g- expiring in a few months. So immigration was was a, a huge issue, but also something that you're seeing starting to shift. So it's interesting to see uh, the different ways people are are thinking about immigration for Latinos. You know that New York Times poll just stuck out to me mm-hmm. so much. Fifty five percent support uh, the immigration. But you have, still have that third that is supporting that border wall. So yeah. you see, you're starting Surprising to see to that me. divide there. Yeah. What
1: are the big important issues for Latinos? Can we boil it down to a couple?
7: I think there was a actually a study by Voto Latino. They, they did a study right before the midterms, and they said what – Issues are important to you. Um, number one, of course, was economy. Number two, though, was abortion. So you see how right. that younger generation is starting to come in there. And number three was gun reform. So okay. those were the top three right before uh, the midterms.
4: And it's interesting, right before the midterms, but I want to talk about participation from mm-hmm. the Latino vote specifically because uh, these issues can matter, but
7: if you're not actually showing up at the polls, yes. uh, then those issues don't matter. Exactly. Talk to us about what you learned. Sure. Yeah, there's 30 million registered Latino voters. So you think about it, but you have to turn out to the polls and just like you're saying so that's why they're starting those initiatives they're going door to door they're starting to get people out there to to recognize their importance of their voice Um, and that's really what they're focused on
1: how do you reach them is it univision telemundo is it digital media how do these politicians try to reach this this community
7: well it's funny i was talking to a lot of them about that and they said what they're doing now is rather than putting a lot of the big money behind let's say advertising or things like that they're going into these smaller organizations. They're going to, for example, auto shows. They're yep. going to, you know, certain dances, like different things, where they can really get in and talk to people, shake hands, go one on one, you know, rather than just a big advertisement placed somewhere, you know, across media. They're going into the communities hmm. and talking with people one on one.
1: Fascinating. It's going to be. I, you know, I follow this uh, story for a lot of time. I spent a lot of time with Univision and some of the Spanish language media companies, and it's a big. Are growing uh, part of the population and an influential one economically and, uh, and politically. Uh, so it's great to get this reporting. Lisa Mateo, she's a business correspondent for Bloomberg Radio, joining us here live in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio with an important story as we start barreling towards that 2024 uh, presidential election. We're going to have a lot more stories like that.
0: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QB. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at Qatar Economic Forum.com.
1: A lot of news out there on the crypto space, and not a lot of it's very good. The ripple effect from FTX um implosion uh is kind of finding its way to the banks you know you talk about uh silvergate uh financial um silicon valley bank lots of issues out there not many of them good let's check in with mike mcglone senior macro strategist for bloomberg intelligence here so mike again it seems like the ripple effect from ftx is is kind of hitting some of the financial (laughs) institutions here How, how do you and others in the crypto space read what we're seeing from the banking side of the equation
2: Hey Paul, well, I think it's a classic Warren Buffett, the tides going out and find out who's wearing clothes. The key point is I don't think we're done yet with finding out who wasn't wearing clothes. So Silvergate on the back of FTX, on the back of Celsius, the things we can just keep going down the line. And it all predicated in the fact that markets went down, not just crypto. So I think the greater risk here is there's going to be more contagion from this. Prices are more likely to go lower, but it's not just cryptos; it's everything. Remember, the Fed is still tightening, and but I think the good thing will come out of is we'll get some good, hopefully astute regulation. Bitcoin is still known as being the outsider; it's not a security; it's clearly a commodity. But I'll, I'll end with this: the key point is next Thursday is the one-year anniversary of the first rate hike, and that to you is the big macro here. Is the Fed is still tightening rates, it's only been a year, less than a year, that rates are still zero. So we're seeing that trickle down, and cryptos are the fastest. In a race going down the most.
4: Mike, it feels like, when, as we hear about the news uh, coming out of Gemini, coming out of Silvergate, it feels like it wasn't just FTX that kind of created this ripple effect. It goes back further to the Three Arrows Capital saga as well. How many more shoes are there left to drop from here yeah. on
2: out? That, well, that's a pretty, it's a exact appropriate question. And my fear, and just being realistic, is there's probably going to be more. Because I do expect in the macro, we might not have put in the bottom in most risk assets. And that's just by being simple and fine, what the Fed is telling us. They are still tightening. We've had this bounce in Bitcoin from 15 to 25. I did point out 25, significant resistance. If you're tactical, you should probably be selling it. And if that happens, we're going to see more. The question is, what's next? But what we're seeing lately is most major institutions are going out and claiming, you know, saying we do not have a exposure to the the bad actors, but um, I'm afraid there's still more. I mean, I just don't know how to quantify that. It's more difficult as people who really dig in. To me, being the macro strategist, I point out that um, I see rolling over in most risk assets. I see something I've never seen before, that um, we have the Bloomberg Commodity next down 20%, and the Fed's still tightening. So cryptos are more likely to suffer the fastest horse in the race. But one thing I'll point out, too, is the, the key, my key theme at the beginning of the year is watching Ethereum a little bit, the number two cryptos. The key levels I watch are 1,000 to 2,000, and it's still stuck in the middle of that range, just making it difficult for all of us.
1: So, my gear in a self-proclaimed crypto capital, at least in the United States, <laughs> down, down, down in Miami. What's the feeling in the... In the community there about crypto, uh, just broadly defined, and, and maybe just some some things things you're hearing it 's impressive
2: the long term building i 'm seeing from mostly the rational, mature people who are in it for a reason and are not the young speculative type who just haven 't experienced the facts of fiduciary duty before, so I sense <laughs> from most people here that Okay, this is rough, but it's just part of any nascent crypto asset. And if you just look at the last low in Bitcoin, it was around 18, 19, around four to 5,000. And here we are, 21,000. So where is it going forward? And then it's just all oh, the building in the space. And one thing that's unstoppable, and it's been happening lately with this gray-scale, grayscale Bitcoin trust, GBTC, and its lawsuit with this litigation with the SEC, they are much more likely to win that case now, which would be the trickle down that, okay, these incumbents are here, this is just the exact example of rapidly advancing technology taking over and you just kind of have to adopt it or risk falling behind. In the meantime, though, it's a bear market.
4: Well, we actually had uh, the Grayscale CEO, Michael Schoenheim, on the 1 p.m. yesterday, a very exciting interview. And one of the questions we asked him was, are you worried about kind of a flow of redemptions when it comes to just kind of the fun flow in GBTC? He didn't really give a straight answer, but uh, Mike, are you worried about that?
2: No, I, what I see in GBTC is most people are seen as is, is somewhat as distressed debt with a high probability of going back to par. So the, the discount got to an uh, extreme of around fifty percent. Right now it's thirty four percent, and if and or when I think it's going to be inevitable, they're going to become an ETF. I think they almost have to because it's happening in every a lot of other countries. That's going to go back to zero. The question is why do you why you know? So I think it's more likely GBTC is put in a low um, than Bitcoin has because that. That extreme discount and the probability that they will become an ETF and win this case, but that's going to be a while.
1: Mike, in addition to all the crypto work you do, uh, your day job is commodities analyst strategist here. With the Fed seemingly continuing to, to raise interest rates, what's the what are you talking to your commodity clients about the most these days?
2: Sell rallies. I, I'm Sell enjoying it, and that's been. I, you know, I was too early on that last year, but it's just the key fact of commodities, particularly crude oil, Paul. They are the world's most significantly autocorrelated assets, and when they go up a lot, they are basically their own enemies, and that's proving proving. True now. So we look at WTI crude oil, it's down 30% on the air. Natural gas has dropped to the same price it traded in 1990, and the Fed is still tightening. And there's a consensus that China demand will bring commodities up. My rule in commodities is fade the consensus because it's already in the market. Expect a severe, normal commodity correction. Expect prices to go much lower. And a key fact I pointed out earlier is just the fact that the Bloomberg Commodity Index is still down 20% on a one year basis, and the Fed is still tightening. I've never seen this. It means you should look to sell any kind of realizing commodities. And one of the ones that's closest to the S&P 500 is copper. Copper, if you, if you, it's basically the same price as S&P 500 if you multi, divide the S&P 500 by 1,000. It's right about four. And I fully expect it's more likely to go to three than five.
4: Well, put this in perspective for us with the copper story because it felt like with this China reopening, it was a no-brainer that copper had this massive mm-hmm. bull case. Where did it go? 30 seconds.
2: Exactly, exactly. No brainers. We know what that means. Do the opposite. So <laughs> copper got a little cheap last year. It's the world's most significant industrial metal, and it's heading lower, in my view. It's down 10% on a one-year basis. I think it's more likely to head towards three, and it's very unlikely to go back above five. It's got to get through this recession, which is inevitable if you look at the yield curve in the U.S.
1: Mike McGlone, clear, concise calls. As always, Mike McGlone, Senior Macro Strategist uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence uh, in Miami, Florida, which is the self-proclaimed, in my mind, uh, <laughs> capital of all things crypto. Well, this may be the conversation of the day, particularly for the tech geeks out there. We're going to table this and talk all things tech, focus on Apple, computer. Anurag Rana, senior tech analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, joins us, as well as Mark Gurman, reporter with Bloomberg News. And then we'll talk a little tech here. Hey, Mark, I want to start with you Talk to us about Apple and their view of India as as an opportunity here. Whenever I think of Apple in India, I think, boy, don't they have to bring in a lower-priced model? How how do you think they're viewing it?
9: India – in Apple's view, could be the company's next China, right? If you remember, China was a very small market for Apple only about 15 years ago, right? But when Apple went to a larger-sized iPhone with the iPhone 6 Plus uh, back in 2014, things really escalated. And Apple sees India in the same way. Right now, China brings in about $75 billion a year in revenue for Apple. That's nearly a fourth of overall annual revenues. They want India to eventually be the same. It might take 10, 20, 30 years, but that's what they're trying to push towards. And so in order to do that, they're making India its own dedicated sales region within the company, its own operational region, uh, separating it out of Europe, right, in Africa the Middle East and the Mediterranean where it was bundled before. And they think this is really going to help uh, push growth and more resources there.
4: Anurag, hop into this conversation, put some numbers on it for us. This supply chain shift, essentially, or this uh, shift that Mark is really outlining, what kind of impact does that have on the fundamentals at a time when I feel like Tim Cook's real legacy was securing the supply chain?
10: Oh, yeah. From a supply chain point of view, India, you know, will become a big part of it, but that may take some time. But I cannot agree more with what Mark is uh, talking here. Uh, India from a you know, numbers point of view should and, and could be a very big market for Apple down the road and largely because the population size is there. And the only question you have to really think about is, you know, at what pace is the middle class becoming more and more richer? Because, frankly, um, I don't think Apple's going to go down the value chain and then come up with a lower price model. Uh, I think the the population in India has to get richer in order to afford that.
1: And Mark, I mean I guess – is that something that you think Apple is, is ready to – I'm not sure – wait for or is that something they anticipate uh, having that Indian market evolve like Anurag was suggesting?
9: Yeah, I agree with Anurag. Apple's not going to go down market. Uh, they're not going to come out with lower-priced devices for a specific market. What they are going to do is they're going to keep coming out with new types of installment plans, new trade-in programs, other new promotions that don't change the cost of the phone, right, per se, but makes it a lot more attainable for people in markets like India. So you're going to see that.
4: Well, Mark, talk to us a little bit again. You talked about the products as well. But it's interesting that Apple is shifting to India, yet I don't think it's they're they're not the main dominant uh, kind of product maker in that market. It's still Samsung, right?
9: Yeah, Apple definitely is not the dominant player in India, and that gives them a big growth opportunity long-term, right? The dominant players there are Samsung, uh, phones from Xiaomi, Huawei, and and other players. These are the Chinese brands. A lot of times these phones can sell for sub $400, and I think that makes that much more attainable, combined with installment programs in a place like uh, India, which is obviously an emerging market. Uh, But I do think Apple's going to do whatever it can marketing-wise. Uh, promotional wise in order to make the iPhone uh, a bit a bit of a better purchase in India, right? Maybe bundle it with other products and services and such. So uh, I do think they will eventually get it done. You know, 5G is just still so nascent in India and it's still, you know, nascent for, for Apple itself. They only went into the 5G market two years ago. Uh, so I do think they have a long-term growth path there. And of course, you know, we do believe that Apple's not going to go down market, but if they decided to sort of hit that lever and go down market, release, you know, a new version of the iPhone SE just for India or a new version of the iPhone SE, which right now is $450, uh, that has, you know, better attributes, bigger screen, 5G, etc. cetera, uh, I think that could be successful there with the right marketing program behind it.
1: Hey, Anurag, talk to us about the AirPod business for Apple. I have my AirPods and the, the problem is they don't <laughs> stay in my ear. So I, I know the product design is perfect at Apple. So the problem must be my ear. But tell me about the iPod business from a financial perspective.
10: Yeah, I, I, I was really intrigued with it a few days ago when I, when I, you know, mine ended up in the washing machine. And, you know, I, I ended up spending $249 for it plus the plan of 29 bucks And I said started looking at the numbers. Before the pandemic, the attach rate for iPhone was about 20%. Um, after the uh, you know, currently it's somewhere around thirty eight, forty percent. And then in the most recent survey that we did for Gen Z users, we saw a sixty-two percent attach rate. And you know, we are modeling that over the next seven, eight years the whole world moves into that realm of close to a sixty percent attach rate. Wait, if explain, that's the, case, the
4: attach rate. What does that mean?
10: It means well use every iPhone users, oh, if I you see, are an so. iPhone user, do you have a do you have an AirPod or not? Ah. Believe me, I landed in Chicago last Monday and I looked around the plane. There wasn't one human being in that plane that <laughs> didn't have an AirPod uh-huh. along with it. So 60% is probably conservative in my mind. But if that happens, you know, AirPods become the third biggest category, you know, for, for Apple down the road. And frankly speaking, you're going to lose them. They're going to fall in water. Your replacement cycle is going to be far faster than an iPhone and uh, you know it's just it's just a beautiful product frankly
1: doesn't stay in my ear so what does <laughs> it say about my ears i guess that's the question hey mark i'd love to get the latest reporting from you and kind of what's the feeling in cupertino about china both as a supplier and as an end market what's the latest thinking
9: I think Apple is pretty confident in its supply chain uh, in China. I think they have seen uh, the Chinese supply chain be pretty strong and pretty resilient other than the last four years. So it's taken some time for them to really wrap their heads around this idea that this whole supply chain they spent 25 years building, you know, really has faced criticism recently, has faced issues. And really, you can chop it up really to uh, the tariffs issue in 2018-2019. Right. And then you can connect it to COVID as well. And those two factors really, uh, with a string of bad luck and COVID zero policies in China, you know, really, you know, weaken that supply chain a little bit, uh, in the eyes of investors and some. And so I don't think Apple is going to shift away from China as people think. I think that the Chinese supply chain uh is here to stay. But I have a big caveat, whereas I think Apple is going to double up and really build additional supply chains, different manufacturing, final assembly facilities in India, Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia, Cork, Ireland, uh, and really expand there. So if there are further issues in the Chinese supply chain, they have backups in place.
4: Mark, let's go to a different part of the business here. Apple TV. What are, what's the growth case for Apple TV at a time when a lot of streaming companies, a lot of media giants really struggling?
9: Yeah, The growth case is really the price. At $7 a month, Apple is still well under the price points you're seeing uh, of Netflix and HBO Max and those bundles there. I think if Apple further pushes Apple TV Plus uh, in terms of bundles, their Apple One bundles, they include it in the price point of some of their other products, I think it could be okay. One new thing they're trying is they're sort of building this temporary back catalog of content so they have their originals which is what you're paying for but you also like, you get about six of these random iTunes movies uh, usually the same ones that are streaming on Netflix uh, included with TV Plus so if they continue to expand that it makes TV Plus quite a bit, bit of a better offering they have not marketed that they don't advertise it it's not advertised as part of the price point every month but I think that's something they're testing right now. And if they continue pulling that lever and make it a bigger part of the package, I think TV Plus could be quite successful.
1: Hey, Anurag, just us finish up with you here. What's the bear case for the stock, Apple? 37 buys, 8 holds, and only 2 sells. Is there a bear case for Apple?
9: The
10: bear case is really, you know, China is the biggest bear case, frankly. And that's really what I, I you know, I get scared about, I think. Um, that That's one area. But the second part also is, For the long period of time, Apple's been growing sales at a clip of about 10 percent per year, let's say, for the last several years. We don't think that's going to happen anymore. It's going to be a high single digit growth rate stock. And as you know, I mean, you you know, what multiple are you going to pay for a stock at that time? I think there is a lot of discussion about valuation. We have done a lot of work on that area. I think those are the two areas that I hear the most criticism about.
1: All right. Good stuff. Uh, really appreciate getting you two uh, smart folks together. Anurag Rana, senior tech analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence and Mark Gurman, reporter for Bloomberg News, covering all things technology.
0: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City, Qatar and premier sponsor q Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com. 2022
1: was a year to forget for risk on investors. It's a 60-40 stock portfolio, nowhere to hide. This year, kind of an up and down, really strong January for some bond uh, investors, some of the best January they've, they've ever seen, uh, and then kind of giving it back in February. So we'll where do we go from here? Let's check in with Mike Smith. He's a senior, senior Portfolio Manager, Allspring, Discovery, SMID Cap Growth Fund. And for those of you not in the know out there, SMID is kind of a combination between small cap and mid cap. You put it together and it's a SMID cap. So how about that? Mike, thanks for, for joining us here. Um, let's look forward here. Um, how are you guys approaching this market? Are you? Do you feel like you're held hostage by the Federal Reserve or do you still feel like there's ways to, to make money here and, and maybe add some value.
11: Hey, Paul, good afternoon. Th- thanks for having me on. I, I think there's definitely reasons to be hopeful and optimistic, um, You know, starting with um, what you just said. There was a lot of damage done last year, and, and um, we entered this year with the posture that last year's pain is this year's opportunity. Uh, and that's starting to play out a, a little bit. I think um, it, it's reasonable to, expect uh, a choppy year and, and some ups and downs as we move forward. But um, you know what we see is uh, there's uh, a divergence in fundamentals that, that is starting to reappear. Uh, when you look at the universe of, of growth companies that we focus on and you compare that to the broader market, uh, fundamentals are superior on three fronts. The, the growth differential is actually uh, as wide as it's it's been in quite some time, about two times the ten-year average. Uh, that there's superior margins and returns, and there's also increasing evidence of uh, superior resilience. The, the rate at which uh, estimates are, are being cut and revised lower uh, for growth companies, um, you know, is less than what we're seeing for the rest of the universe. And you know, typically you you pay a premium for better fundamentals. You pay. A higher price for better growth, better margin, and more resilience. Uh, but last year, that premium went away, and so uh, what we think reemerges is a reward for patient and optimistic investors who uh, are willing to take some risk and, and try to navigate uh, the choppy, choppy so, waters that we're all sailing through.
1: So, where where are we, or where are you guys, in terms of your view of valuation? If, if you want to get you know tilt your portfolio more towards growth. Companies, where where is the kind of the valuation play?
11: We think valuation overall is is about average for, for growth stocks. So um, you know, it got quite extended. Uh, that's part of what contributed to the pain in the first half of last year. Uh, we're, we're not at all time lows, but we're at a fair value where you can be rewarded for investing in those superior fundamentals. And I think in terms of where you find opportunity, it's, it's broad based. I think. One of the most interesting things that's going on is technology cycles through different industries and is adopted by all different types of, of businesses. It's creating winners and losers and companies with superior growth in and, and lots of different places.
1: So, give us a sense are there some sectors you like uh, at, at the moment?
11: Yeah, the, the most interesting opportunities that we see are in uh, technology, uh, consumer, and healthcare. Th- those are the three sectors where. Uh, fundamental differentials get rewarded. It, it's very hard in places like energy and, and interest-sensitive financials to make money based on fundamentals. You, you, you get paid for getting the oil price right or the yield curve right. We, we avoid those sectors and uh, dive into opportunities where um, the differences in, in the quality of the business matter.
1: You've got a name here uh, that, that you guys like, Mercado Libre. I've heard that name before. It's a really interesting story. Tell us about it.
11: Yeah, Mercado Libre is essentially both the Amazon and PayPal of Latin America, and um, you know it's, it's early days in the markets where they do business in terms of the adoption of e-commerce and digital payments, and the value proposition to the end user, or the consumer, is meaningfully better. Um, you know, regardless of the economic regime, people pay for better. They, they pay for more convenience. They pay for less friction, uh, more safe transactions, and so the, the growth dynamics that they're seeing, which are quite explosive, are, are primarily driven by that value proposition and the underpenetration of e-commerce and, and digital payments.
1: So you mentioned uh, healthcare before. How do you guys play healthcare? Do you go into the services side, the ph- the pharma side, the biotech side? How do you guys like to get exposure to healthcare?
11: You know, again, I think it starts with the value proposition and what does each in individual business enable uh, as we sit here today in the United States, we've never spent more on healthcare and the system's never been more complicated or more broken. And so any business that brings a solution to the table that, that saves lives or saves dollars, we think has a long runway for growth. And so when you look at, you know, companies like Inspire Medical Systems as an example, Uh, You know, what they enable is an alternative that's better for the patient. Uh, Who who wants to wear a mask at night to deal with their sleep apnea if you don't have to? And uh, if you get better results with with less inconvenience or a lower cost, uh, you know, there's wide adoption. And so, um, you know, there are multiple examples of that throughout our portfolio. But, again, it all comes back to enabling something better. That's the common denominator.
1: So, Dan, on the macro side – how concerned are you that uh, that we are in a higher rate for longer, potentially, uh, environment? And, and how do you guys feel about that at Allspring?
9: You know,
11: it, it, it's uh, your crystal ball is as good as mine when it comes to where rates settle and, and what the Fed does from here. I, I think it's clear that there's a commitment to kill inflation, and uh, the Fed couldn't be more clear about where they stand on that. So we have to be humble in... Processing what that means, but um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we have an enormous amount of debt in our country. We have a lot of of bad demographics in in the developed economies, including the United States. Those are both two big overhangs on growth. Um, You know, it's hard to see a scenario where um, it it takes a long time to kill inflation. It takes a long time to restrain growth because there's structural forces that are going to cause those restraints or constraints to happen anyways. So, um, you know, I I think time will tell as we move through the year. I'm I'm not looking for a a big upside surprise. The rates have have come way down, but I I think it's quite possible we've seen the highs, and we just need to to bide our time now to get to the other side of the cycle.
1: All right, Mike. Uh, Always appreciate uh, getting a couple minutes of your time. Mike Smith, he's a senior portfolio manager at Allspring Discovery. It's a smid cap growth fund. Small mid-cap growth, and all spring is a former strong capital, which was an absolute must-stop when you wanted to go to the Midwest and see institutional investors strong out there in the, uh, the burbs of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which pound for pound, I think Milwaukee, Wisconsin, might have some of the best money managers out there.
2: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform
1: you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg.